All right. Well, welcome. Glad to see everybody here again. This thing gets turned. Excuse me. I'm going to do one thing. Um, so uh, last week we left off with the encouragement to study what? Do you remember? Look at the what? When you struggle with your faith? The Bible? The Word of God? Uh, yeah, that would be the right answer, but not quite. The what? So what was the, the letter? Remember, I'm the, the, what, what's going to become a symbol for us? You know, study the bridge. Remember the bridge analogy? Christ being the bridge? So that was a real turning point in our study. We have been looking so much at, uh, you know, we started, of course, with the doctrine of Scripture and Revelation, and we got into the whole doctrine of, of um, you know, God and the decrees and, and who he is and how he, uh, how he is relative his, to his sovereignty to the world. And, and in that sovereignty, we began to engage what we describe as the subjective uh, doctrines of salvation, things like effectual calling, remember, and then uh, faith, saving faith and, and repentance and faith, or what we call the conversion. And so we were talking about that sort of at the end, though, we, we really have come to a kind of a, a transition. What a beautiful time of year to do that. Because of all the times of year to, to study this doctrine, this is perhaps a wonderful time uh, as we celebrate the meaning and the coming of Christ and what that really means. And so tonight really is a perfect Christmas uh, Bible study uh, to see what we mean by that. But um, so we study the bridge. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to study the bridge. We're going to actually ask the question, you know, of the most ultimate question of all in our salvation, who is Christ? And um, let's start with our discussion, though. Uh, what did you, what did y'all say on the first one? Someone, um, what, what was the point of the question? Give me the first one. There. So, what was the? What do you think Newbigin's saying there? What's the essence of what he's pleading for? Let's make sure we understand the quote first before we get to the question. What, what's the point? What's he pleading? What's his pleading? Pleading for sufficiency. Okay, the sufficiency of Christ. Good. <clears throat> And by that sufficiency, he tags that to what other issue? His lordship, his universal lordship. You know, that was the first creed um, of the Christian church. You know, we find it in 1 John, and it's just a very simple, Jesus is Lord. And in the first century, that was truly what you were evaluated by. That was the first, that was the big issue. There is, this is not a sectarian Lord. I mean... So the universality of Christ gets to the issue of th- this is the savior of the whole world. You know, he's sufficient. It's not, there's nothing that can add to him. There's nothing that can complement him. It's, it's all gr- Christ, the universality of Christ. Now, the, 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 the doctrine that supports that then would be what? Or what's the thing that we're, we need to understand about Christ, his person that is, that would make sense of such, that's a pretty, uh, you could say arrogant claim in this day of tolerance because it pretty much excludes all other religions as a pathway to salvation. It's a pretty arrogant claim to say he, he is Lord of all, not just a sectarian Lord. So that's a pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty humongous statement here. Uh, now, what, base, what basis do we have for that, do you think? You'd have to be unique. You'd have to be unique, Good. He's not just another man. He's not a random guy. He's not a random guy. 
He'd have to be God. He'd have to be God. Yeah, so he'd have to have existed before all things. Exactly. Good. Good. So he'd have to be God, but then our salvation depends on him being what? Human. Human. Exactly. So so if you found another religion that, that boasts of a God-man, <laughs> our creator, God, who... Uh, and so notice how our, our confession focuses on Christology. Uh, the title of this chapter, remember, in our Westminster Confession, is Christ the Mediator. It really goes right after that, that aspect. It's, it, I really like this chapter because it really wants us to focus on Christ and what we know of Christ vis-a-vis our salvation, vis-a-vis what he has. You know, a lot of times in theology you'll distinguish between the person and the work of Christ. And the important thing is that there's obviously a connection. And that's what the first question was wanting you to sort of reflect about a little bit. There's got to be a connection between what, what is the nature of salvation or what kind, what, what is the, what's the characteristics of a salvation in a religion are going to relate to the characteristics of the Savior paradigm, whatever that might be. And so what, what is it about Christ that makes him universal Lord? Well, he is the only God, man, who can therefore represent both parties in reconciling them back to one another as mediator. Are you going to expand on why he has to be human to fulfill that role? I think we will, but we can go ahead and hit it a little bit if you want. What do you think? Or what, did, what would you think? Anybody want to respond to Fred's question? Why, why do you think it's so important that he be man? We need to be saved from a human condition. Okay. The sin that we have inherited. Okay, so yeah. why wouldn't I'll play Fred's that uh, devil advocate? Why? I mean, why wouldn't God just say, "I forgive you"? You're saying he would not be a just God. Okay. Anybody else? That's right. It's it's a funny legal argument. It sounds yeah. like. I mean, there's a legal not, not a logical argument. All the same like it's, it's a legal one that's maybe embedded in God's character that it has to be a human. Well, I think it's. I think I don't know. I don't know the distinction between logical and legal. I guess it's 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 a legal argument to be sure. And and what we discovered, remember earlier, is how does God relate to humanity? How does our relationship get preserved? It really comes out of the sermon I preached last week, actually. Um, but this idea that that God is who He is, right? God, who is God? But what is God? We we'll start there. That's logical. What is God? Come on, it's not rock. I'm not trying to trick you here. He's creator. <laughs> He's creator. Good. Owner. He's owner. He's sovereign. He's Lord. He's he he's the Alpha, the Omega, all that stuff, right? So so righteousness is what? Well, relating to God rightly. It's relating to him rightly. Rightly is to relate to him not as just another co equal, it's to relate to him as Lord. Then in the sermon this week, you remember I, I explained how the law is, is, a, is a gracious condescension on the part of God in the sense of that he's wanting to reveal himself and who he is vis-a-vis the law of what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself who's made in the image of God. It's all related to God. So back to your question, what's, what is sin? Well, we, we discovered that sin is that we didn't relate to God rightly. We rejected God as our Lord. We rejected him. So the problem, Fred, 
In the, the, what's the problem? The problem is God's man. God's offended, rightly so. It was his right to be treated as creator Lord. And he's offended. His person is offended. I don't mean that he's... I mean, I guess he is offended, but, but, but in a, I don't, don't read too much humanness into that, I guess. But his nature, his person, his rights are offended, right? So now, how you, so the problem is God. That's, our, that's, human, that's the human problem. That's, that's where all the problems begin, is we got a problem with God, man. And now, back to your question, what about Christ? And so we have a reconciliation issue. The Bible describes salvation as what? Reconciliation. That's the kind of... That's the, if the problem is God, that's our problem. He, he's mad. He's, we call it wrath, whatever. And he's justifiably mad because of who he is and how we've treated him. Mm-hmm. So if the problem's God, we need, a, we need a mediator. Now, for a mediator to be a mediator, he's got to represent the interest of both parties. And therein becomes the uniqueness of Christ. He can represent God, for he is God. He can represent man because he is man. So therefore, we speak of substitutionary atonement, i.e., he accomplishes what man was supposed to accomplish for us, both in his active and his passive obedience of the law. He submits to the curse of, of rejecting God, and he submits to the, um, the requirements of how we would treat God, so that in Christ... He can now, on behalf of humanity, say, as human, as eternal human, I am I'm rightly presenting to you, God, uh, the, the works that, uh, or the acts or the, or the righteous relation to you that they, all of humanity, uh, you know, was to give you. And on behalf of God, he can overcome the wrath of God, and he can also be the righteousness of man, and he can, and he can lord that into our lives. So I don't know if you want to help with that yet. Yeah. Stacey Aronian chimed in and said, from the sermon on Sunday, Jesus had to live a righteous life to fulfill all righteousness. That's right. That's the act of obedience. Thank you. That's great. You were listening. I love that. Every time you listen to that. So a way I've heard it put is that which was not assumed was not redeemed. Um, have you heard that before? Yeah. Is it, so is that that it's underlying what qualifies a sufficient mediator. So say it for everybody slowly, and then I want you to unpack it for me. Um, <laughs> I said, I heard that which was not assumed, that is human nature, um, was not redeemed. Um, so, so Jesus had to be a man. He had to be a man. Um, my question is, is that... He also had to be a God, because God is also assumed in the transaction. But go ahead. Is that statement um, merely getting at what it takes to be a, a good enough mediator between God and man? Um, well, he has to have, he has to be human to represent humanness to God. He has to be God to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God and without fallibility. So he can. Again, the mediator term is the best I know. You know, and actually, we're going to get into it, but that's a, that's the beginning. So, I think that's very logical. I think that's very legal. But it's, but remember, the law was a condescension, or we call it the covenant. The covenant is a condescension on the part of God. He, it's how can I help these people relate to me? 
and in enters the covenant. The covenant is how God graciously becomes comes into our flesh. He he uses a transaction that was common to humanity, the common transaction of a contract. Two parties in a contract, you know, party A, party B. Party B fails the contract. And the uniqueness of God's grace is that he, therefore, assumes the responsibility of B in order to satisfy himself. But to do that, the second person of the Trinity enters into the covenant with his father to represent humanity by his incarnation. And we need that to believe that God's real. Yeah. <clears throat> we need, we need, sure Christ, we yeah. need God as man, and we need Jesus as man mm-hmm. so that we understand who God is. Because yeah, he is it. the revelation of God as well. That's right. He's the yeah. ultimate revelation of God. Right. And he is. That's correct. Like Hebrews 1. Yeah. I think there's another thing, too, that God cannot be tempted, the Bible says. But well, Jesus sense. was tempted in every way yeah. as we are. Yeah, there's been a lot of theological discussion about that. Well, Well, but the point being is that... Yeah, yeah. He's the same person then... But the scripture says as well in John that he he was tempted, but not yet, not with... with, So, is there a kind of temptation where Christ was provided the opportunity to sin? So you could call that temptation. Oh, yeah. But without the, the temptation internally to sin. And that's the way I would describe that. In other words, he had not sinned. Remember, Jesus describes sin as not what we do outwardly only. It's even the mo- it's even the, the inward, right? So s- somehow when Satan came to him on the mountain, he, had, he was given the temptation to do what he, all those sins, but never once was he tempted, if you mean by that, that he was over there wanting it or desiring it. His affections were never turned. Now, that's, that's the classic answer. I, I don't have the time to debate that with you now, but that's how theologians and the churches describe that. And, and you go to First John where it describes Christ as never being tempted to sin. So See me after class. Yeah, yeah, we can go. Right. <laughs> well, let's go on to the next question. Um, okay, so uh, I wanted you, a lot of this class is going to somewhat assume, remember we've already talked about the doctrine of God and therefore the doctrine of the Trinity. We're not going to repeat that. There was a whole lot there already about this idea of how do we know that God is God. And there's a whole lot of scripture there. So if you see a little lack of scripture here, it's because I've referenced you to all, remember there was like three pages of scriptures actually, uh, of why, what is the basis in scripture of believing that Jesus is God? And of course the humanity of Jesus is pretty much undisputed. Um, and so the issue there is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to assume it. But what I wanted you to do this in the second round table is these are two obviously you're familiar with the Nicene Creed um, the, the Christological debates did not cease with the Nicene though it continued and, there's so, it was, and there was some clarity that was brought to the table I think both of these creeds are what we call ecumenical creeds both of them are affirmed although, although the, you know, uh, the eastern with a little more hesitation than the western the Chalcedon I'm talking about and so I've given you a real summary of the political and theological events that led to the Chalcedon uh, Treaty, if you will, or, or creed. And you've had a chance to read them both. What did you? What did you? Just, how did you answer that question? How does Chalcedon? What do you? What, how do you see it clarifying? What? What? What do you learn from the second one that you didn't learn from the first one? Who wants to start? 
And a lot of this was honestly an exercise that you would, I'd force you to get in there and be, and really think about these two very hugely significant documents that the church has relied on ever since. So what did you notice? Detail. Some details. Okay. The implications of being born of the Virgin Mary. Okay. So what else? It expands on what begotten means. And how do you what what expands you see? That he was begotten and made made human. That's a, it says that in the last line of Nicene, and this expands on what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And the distinctions though between other humans, he's human but without sin. Okay. So do you see anything? Hap- I mean, when you look at the divinity of God we and are, the humanity of God, talking, yeah. Um, about how if you just look at that excerpt from the Nicene Creed. Um, you could think that maybe Jesus was divine and then he was human and think of those as kind of separate phases, um, not coexisting hmm. natures, but then like that underlying chunk, particularly of the Chalcedonian Creed, um, was really clarifying you no know, two natures that hmm. are absolutely hmm. distinct but absolutely coexisting at the same time. That was the key. I mean, they're all saying it, but it was clarified. Now, if you want to read it, I've given it to you there, but it's really quite a story, and I've given it to you there just in a summary fashion. But what was particularly happening here is you had this controversy, right, between Cyril, and um, which was the Alexandrian, and then you had Nestorius, uh, Eastern, and um, the Antikin Christology. And so what you have are these... Basically, you know, these trajectories of one, not, one wanting to preserve the divinity of Christ, the other wanting to preserve the, the, the uh, humanity of Christ. Uh, the East being on the humanity side, the West being on the divinity side, if you will. And, um, so the, so the, and it all got around this issue of the, the, of the veneration of Mary. That's what's ironic. As so many of these theological issues do, this was almost more about the veneration of Mary than it was about Christology, but then we had to go back to Christology, right? Well, they were related. I shouldn't say more. And, um, and so the East would be very uncomfortable with the, the, the idea of the mother of God, you see. They emphasize God's humanity, and, and thus the, the emphasis there on the word became flesh and templed. So they really focus on the participation of worship. Think about that. If you've ever gone to an Eastern church, so much of what's happening is God in the midst of us, there is a participation manner of knowing and worshiping God um, through the movements of the worship in the temple, etc. Uh, you see all the, you know, you think of the aesthetics of the Eastern tradition. And then you've got over here more the declaration, the word, which is the eternal God invisible, proclaimed through word and the power of that word, the divinity of Christ. So the word became flesh and templed among us, right? And so this thing was all going on and it's a very poignant moment where we begin to see they were both right and eventually both Cyril and Nestorius were were declared as orthodox. Now Nestorianism uh, sometimes, well, that's not necessarily orthodox. So you got to get rid of sort of the extremes that come out of these debates, often the case. So I want to so look at this thing here where, um, let me see here, where was it? 
uh, that I say this. Uh, look, look over here on uh, the, uh, let's see what paragraph it is. The third paragraph. I'm in your notes, by the way. If you can pull up the, uh, the notes. So if you, I'm still giving you, and if you have your own notes, you can look at them. Do you see under the Chalcedonian Creed? Everybody there? I'm going to read a little bit from it. So I talk about the protagonists, Bishop Nestorius of Constantinople and Bishop Cyril of Alexandria, representing the East and West respectively. The former stressed the two natures to preserve Christ's humanity. The latter stressed one nature to preserve Christ's divinity. Uh, and yet both conceded the absolute necessity of preserving a dialectical understanding of the relationship of the human and divine in Christology. Uh, it was all charged in this political context of the veneration of Mary as the, quote, mother of God, Cyril's, uh, you know, or not, Nestorius. Um, I'm going to just pass through that a little bit. Eventually, do you see the paragraph where it starts with eventually, if you're following it in your notes? So eventually, by what, would someone just read that? This is a good little sentence, I think, that kind of explains things. This kind of gets to the debate. Who would read that for me? Eventually, by means of the convergence in theologizing and politicizing, and after involving a whole host of subsequent personalities, the Antiochian school per Eutychus, on the east side and Alexandrian school per Desorius, on the west side, for instance, Council of Ephesus in 431 decided in favor of the Cyril-Alexandrian school and against what was then by a more eccentric expression of the Antiochian <coughs> than was previously held by Nestorius himself. Again, as noted by Ben Green, in deciding Cyril's favor, Ephesus did not, however, fully adopt Cyril's Christology. Likewise, Nestorius's overall delivery of the Antiochian Christology is much more orthodox. He was firmly convinced of the union of the divine and human natures in the single Son, Christ. I did not say that the Son was one person and God, the Word, another. I said that God, the Word, was by nature one and the temple by nature another. One Son by conjunction. Stop there for a minute. Look at that sense very closely and see what, what do you think is happening there? What's he distinguishing here? What, he, he, in other words, it's not two persons distinct. It's one person, two natures distinct. So it's the union. So there's the union and the, this, this distinction. That we, there's a distinction in nature, but there's not a distinction in personhood. It's by nature, this, this person, Jesus the Christ, is by nature, as, as a person, is what? One. But by nature, it is two conjoined. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's doing. And he's utilizing John 1, 17. The word became flesh and templed among us. Now that's going to be crucial. Because just as Mariology is going to go down and... Because of again, Mary is the first church. She is the, the womb, if you will of salvation, Mary is. Um, and so Mary is going to then become the image of the church. 
So if you believe, if you see Mary as the mother of God, then the bait begins to get, well, then she must in some sense be uniquely divine. Or at least in, in uniquely, not divine, but infallible is really what I want to say. So there, there, that's the beginning of the doctrine of the of the of papal infallibility and the, and the doctrine of the fa- fall, infallibility of the church, and it comes out of this this present. And see, Nicene, I mean, uh, uh, Nestorius is over here going, no, whoa, 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 no, no, Mary's not infallible. She's she's actually quite human. It's the Holy Spirit that's infallible, and there's these two. Now, eventually, these guys come together, and I'll tell you about that at the at the, the rest of the paragraphs here. But that's really pretty, that, that kind of explains the historicity of this doctrine a little bit that then translates into these two creeds. And the very key thing you want to keep in mind is distinct but never separate. One person, two natures. Distinct but never separate. And you're going to take that, and I'm setting you up because when we get into the doctrine of the church, it's going to explain the mystery of the church. Because you'll have a subsequent debate about, well, what is the church? And, and the, off we go again. We're going to say, well, it's, it's like Mary. It's not infallible, but it is the womb of God's salvation. Um, and there's an amazing trajectory of redemptive history that gets at this idea. And it's what we call today the temple. I mean, the temple is just not any other house, Right? But on the other hand, the temple doesn't save you either. It's, it's the divine, the God that saves, the God who fills the temple. It's the same with Christ. You ask, well, then why does Christ have to be too? What makes Christ so unique? Well, you begin to fill it out because Christ is filled with the divinity, with the power to save, the power to recreate, which is the, the purpose of his signs and his ministry. He's going around the earth doing what? Creating new creations. Raising people from the dead, doing these sort of miracles. The whole point of here's Jesus sitting in a boat, and what does he do? I mean, the, 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 the disciples are scared to death of what? The storm. Until Jesus calmed the storm with a word. And then what were they afraid of? Holy moly. Storm ain't nothing compared to who I'm sitting in this boat with. I mean, can you imagine that moment when they realized this guy is more powerful than nature? The Lord of nature? I mean, I'm wanting to jump out of the boat. I'll take on the thunderstorm any day. But that's the point. Here's the temple that we descri- that John described. Christ is the temple of God incarnate. The very life-giving, life-recreating power of God walking on earth. And manifestations of that being through his signs and wonders. And yet he's human. He's accessible. He's in the midst of us. He fulfills the covenant in the temple insofar as it's now God in the midst of us that we might have access to this very power in order to save us. So why is Christ the universal Lord of all? Because Christ is both God and man. And therefore, this is not a sectarian guy. And this, this, this beautiful uh, uh, Nicene and now Chalcedon history explains how the church wrestled with that, to how do we bring these two things together. And, of course, at some point you are just lost with mystery. Any, any question? <laughs> what a dumb question. If you don't have questions, you're not worshiping it. 
But do you have some questions at least trying to get your head around what we can? And all this language that you see is using language of that day, particularly uh, logic, you know, philosophical languages in there. All sort of stuff is used here semantically to try to explain really what's very simple, if not profound, and un, uh, un, with, well, simple, but not possible to discern at all. Right? But it's, not, it's really keep it simple, distinct, but never separate. You, there's never a time. So is Jesus right now in heaven human? Yeah. Yes, he is. Is he right now in heaven God? Yes, he is. He's always been that way. He didn't get created. You know, he's, 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 he, he's born, but he was pre-existent God-man. It's not like he, he, that was a, a change in time for him. All right. That's, that's Christology proper, if you will. Just a quick question. Yeah. So uh, when this debate was going on, are they both looking at the same exact data as far as what scripture really is? And they're just trying to make sense of it? Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're both pointing, referencing the same things and not saying, oh, but I'm referencing two other things. Oh, I, I'm sure in the debate. Yeah, in fact, in, in the debate, certainly they would, you interpret scripture with scripture, right? So I'm sure, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're looking at all of this. But the they scripture. all at this point have the same Oh, scripture. yeah. Yes, they okay. do. Yeah. yeah. Scripture's pretty much resolved by the fourth century. Good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I mean, you know. Okay. Yeah, Jim. So, so what about the Jewish leaders at the time Christ was walking on earth? I mean, was this the issue that they couldn't wrap their heads around? How could you be the Messiah? Good question. If, in fact, you're the son of Joseph the Nazarene. Right. Well, there's many ways to answer what, what that question. Their ex, what yeah. was their expectations, yeah. I guess, yeah. Very based good. upon their review of the Old Testament and Scripture as to what, what the Messiah would actually be? Yep. Good question. Um, so I'm going to answer with two, two answers. Number one, let's, in the first one's the, the kind of theological. Um, don't forget what Jesus said over and over and over again. That, that, that um, I could, to see Jesus as the Messiah is the gift of God. So the, the theological answer is, why couldn't they see that he's the Messiah? Because it had not been granted to them to see. Their eyes were hardened. Their ears were hardened, right? So remember that. That's, that's how he's always confronting the Pharisees. He's always quoting Isaiah, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear. These things have to be spiritually appraised. By, by that, I mean by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why to reject the Holy Spirit is to reject the gift of the Spirit of seeing. And that's the impardonable sin. So that's the big, the ultimate answer. But to your question, which is a really good question, theologians call it a messianic secret. John, uh, Mark's gospel was written with that particular, all of them were written with that issue. And the Messiah and its secrets is this. And, it's, and, it's, and you see it all through the Isaiah as well as like Isaiah 53, you know, you know that where it's, you know, he comes and no one recognizes him for who he is. Why? The big issue is that the, the, the Messianic Jews expected or anticipated a conquering king. A powerful and conquering king. Humiliation was not in their worldview about this coming of Christ. So when Christ came and was born in a meager manger and from there just got more and more humble as it goes, that was a stumbling block. The cross, basically, was a stumbling block. They missed a good... Now, if you look back retroactively, you see it. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in the temple. That part of what the Messiah would come and do would be to suffer 
the, 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 you know, the penalty of humanity, right? The humiliation of God. So that's it. It's the messianic secret, the fact that the cross was the summing. And everything that's represented under the rubric of cross, his humiliation, he, he comes, he, they, uh, the, the post-Maccabean Jew were expecting a political defeat of Rome. So they kept, they come to him and they knew that's why the, the Pharisees tricked him that way because they said, well, I know they're going to reject him when, he's, when he exposes the fact that he's not here to conquer Caesar. And that's, what are you going to do with those coins, Jesus? And boy, what did he do? I didn't give a flip about those coins. <laughs> I didn't come to do that. I came to die. So that, that's the answer. They, they had a theology of the Messiah that had no room, only saw triumphalism. So you can imagine the uh-oh when Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he gets on the donkey, which was a, a, a messianic uh, prophecy as to how the king, the donkey represented victory, by the, by the way. That wasn't a humble sort of thing. It's like there's no longer the war horse. He's now on the donkey. And he's coming into the Jerusalem. And I mean, the people gather around the road, right? And they're going, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're their hot dog. Finally, the day has come. Peter's got, remember, his sword. And, you know, these guys got swords. They're ready to go. We got the Messiah. We've seen him raise people from the dead. We're going to conquer Jerusalem, um, you know, uh, Caesar. And then what does he do? He goes to the temple? No. He goes to the temple? <laughs> Can you imagine what the Jews were thinking here? You, whoa, 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 detour. And on the way to the temple, according to Mark, the fig tree... He touches the fig tree and he curses the tree and says, because you've bore, you have not bore you know, any fruit, you're cursed. And then he goes to the temple and he declares war on it. And then they come to him after the temple. I'm giving you the sequence here. And they say, well, what are you going to do about Caesar? Here are these coins, man. What are you going to do? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God the things that are God. And then, of course, he gets his disciples together and he begins to tell them, I'm going to die. And and, of course, Peter says, no way, man, no way. And then Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me. You see, that's the messianic secret. How it was that Messiah looked so humble and powerless. And they didn't get the uh, atonement motif, basically. Yeah, I, I really got to move on, but one quick one, Rico. Um, in the Deuteronomy 23, we also, 21, 23, we forget to, I think, in this day and age, back for the Jewish people, and it says in the, you must not leave your body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not, you must not desecrate the land of the Lord your God. And so, Christ dying on the cross, I mean, that, that was a major curse as well. And I think He was suffering the curse, exactly. Yeah. yeah, good. So let's go to Westminster chapter 8. Um, could someone read number one? It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, Called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And number two? The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time has come, take upon himself man's upon him man's nature, 
with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now what's so significant about this is that the, the confession wants to draw the link between the person of God, Christ and the work of Christ. They are inextricably linked. The work that he does is related then to who he is. And who he is is, is a prerequisite to the kind of work that he's going to do. And what the confession here wants to clarify is the, at the very heart and soul, at the fundamental nature of what Christ came to do was what? For our salvation. What was he coming to be in order for our salvation? According to this. You see it? Over and over. It's too, too easy. He's mediator, right? You see how it began and it began? He, the first, number one is describing him as mediator. Mediating God's word, prophet, mediating Christ's presence, priest, mediating Christ's lordship and shepherdship, king, as was, for, as was typologized through the offices of ancient Israel. All of those offices now are pointing us to the one who fulfilled those offices in Christ prophet, priest, and king, which, by the way, when we get to the church, is going to give you the three marks of the church as the mediatorial pre- uh, presence of Christ in the midst of us. Now, um, with that, then, so that's number one. Here's what he came to do. Then number two, here's who he is that enables him to do what he came to do. And so you see how they do Christology here. It's really brilliant. And I, I really prefer that, that we don't lose sight of the salvific. Let's, let's read, then, the way that A.A. A. Hodge in his commentary. I'll just go ahead and read it for us. So what does it mean that Christ is described as our mediator? This is a good little description. As it respects God, it is absolutely necessary in order to be reconciled that the mediator should propitiate the just displeasure of God by expiating or satisfying the guilt of sin, and that he should supplicate in our behalf, and that he should actually introduce our persons and services to the acceptance of the Father. Do you see that? He needed to be God and man. As respects man, it is absolutely necessary that the mediator should reveal to them the truth concerning God and their relations to him and the conditions of acceptable service, that he should persuade and enable them to receive and obey the truth so revealed, and that he should so direct and sustain them and so control all the outward influences to which they are subjected that their deliverance from sin and from the powers of evil would shall, world shall be perfected. And so the idea being that, that again... There was a human side to this reconciliation, and there was a divine side to this reconciliation, and he satisfies the office of mediator by being both God and man, and Hodge is trying to explain a little bit more of what that means. And so, again, I won't go through number four, uh, again, trying to get you to think more about the relationship of the person and the work. Um, it, the reason I think, does anybody want to just guess, why am I stressing that? Let's see if you can just kind of stop and meditate a little bit. Why would I, in the confession, actually be medis- emphasizing so much that one without the other is absent of something? Why do we need to keep those two things together, person and work? Anybody want to think about that? It's kind of a hard question. I mean, it could go in many ways, I think. But I just want you to think about it. Is that... 
You see why that's profound? Yeah. I thought you gave the answer. I thought you said he had to be God to represent God and man yeah. to represent God. Yeah, that's actually the answer of why did the mediator have to be both God and man. That's right. But I'm asking the question, why, why present Christology this way? What would you what would you lack if you didn't have one or the other? What would what kinds of heresies could you go to? Christ is an angel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, with, without the work, you'd have a dead God. It'd be an abstract, yeah. rational conception of a God, but there's in, no inactive. Yeah. Inactive. So so that's good, and I think that was true too. And so so you. You don't know God. The point is, in redemptive history, you don't know God except through salvation. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? You don't know God except through salvation. In other words, you you can't you can't conceive of of you can't sit in a in a in a lab, and and do theology. You've got to actually experience theology for it to be true theology. Eyes to see, ears to hear, and so there's always this relationship between knowing. God. I mean, can you really know God and yet reject him? I guess you can in a sense of one way, but, but the, the nature of this thing is the two have to come together. It's, it's not an academic subject, God. It's a deeply personal and salvific subject. <coughs> and that's how we know it. It's interesting, too. You know, why, did God, why does God allow sin? You know, why did he create a world with humanity and the free will? Well, what is revealed through the redemptive story that redeems sinners back to God. What would we know about God if it weren't for that redemptive story? Think about it that way. We would know very, very little. And so that's the answer that Paul gives in Romans 9. When it says, hold it. <laughs> Why would God do it? Well, who are you? Oh, you know, to answer back to God. But then he goes, how do you know that it wasn't for the, in order to reveal God's glory? That, that some are vessels of wrath, some are vessels of mercy in this story of salvation, that God could be revealed through it. So it's ultimately about revelation again and the two coming together. All right? Any thoughts? So, so you're saying the word is not enough, like word written in a book, but you have to have word became flesh. Well, I'm saying what would you write about? If you, I mean, you could just you could give a definition. God is merciful. God is gracious. Yeah, you could go through a laundry list. Of you could, how God is. but you wouldn't know what those laundry lists are. You wouldn't understand mercy apart from there being real mercy somewhere. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's a revelation. Redemption is revelation. That's that's the point I'm making. It's a relationship between yeah. persons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going off the topic a little bit, how is redemption sort of characterized in Islam? Because you don't have mm-hmm. one of the God, you know, one of the Trinity, yeah. Jesus walking on earth as a man. Yeah, there's no your shoes. So I mean, but but I I don't know the Quran, so I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that in some place somehow this issue is addressed. Or it's addressed through works. I mean, at the end of the day, that's all, every religion, there is no atonement paradigm here. Mm-hmm. There is no someone offered a substitutionary sacrifice for me. It's, it's, it lacks that aspect of, of a salvific story. So it's going to return to, I mean, the, the, in, in Islam, what, I mean, there's a lot about Islam that's very, um, how do I say it, attractive, let's, say, let's put it this way, because of its simplicity. 
I mean, it really comes down to having a proper creed and doing the four. What are they for? I, I used to do all, no, all this it's stuff. Five the, yes, what are they are? The five pillars of Islam. Yeah. yeah. And um, and you know you you do that and and there's salvation. It's a works righteousness. But what you've done is exactly what I would say the Pharisees have done. They had to lower the the law. They had to reduce the law to a mere five pillars, and pillars that could be accomplished in such a manner, outwardly speaking. Um, and in the creed, there's but one God, you know, and then and his prophet is Muhammad. That's the creed. I mean, it's an incredibly extraordinarily simple religion. And so when you talk to missionaries or those who've really worked with Muslims, and again, I had the blessing of taking an Islam course by probably the most renowned Muslim missionary in the world. And, um, and you know, he's, he would always emphasize this. He would say, you know, this, let's don't underestimate how powerful the simplicity is. That it's just so universal. If, if you just put that thing and pray and say the things you need to say, there's a kind of simplicity to that. And there's only one God. We don't have all this Trinity stuff. <laughs> You know, so let's be honest. You know, it's it's kind of a tantalizing for its simplicity, but at the end of the day, you've reduced God very significantly. Is what our critique would be that we we don't know the true, robust living God except through this whole redemptive story that we've talked about. So there is no mediator. Yeah, for us. No, no, not for them. There's a prophet who directs you to what you need to do. You know, and we have many religions like that with prophets. It's what we don't have. What makes Christ Christianity so unique is this mediatorial relationship. This, and we call that what grace. You're saved by grace. Some, he satisfies what needed to be satisfied as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. That's huge. Any thoughts? All right, the next, just to move on pretty quickly here. Um, it's almost yeah. too good to be. Exactly. And that's the only answer that, that, that reveals you got. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's exactly the response of Scripture all over the place. I, I wanted to throw in here uh, in our shorter catechism, um, you know, when you think about the mediation of Christ, how does he mediate? Well, our confession reminds us it's by these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Um you know, I just realized there's a lot of scripture I should have been giving you right here, and somehow I didn't get in there. But anyway, um, it'll come up later. But um, so look at look at number forty three. Question number six is where I'm at. I just realized too I don't have uh, num- page numbers on this thing, do I? Anyway, I'm down at question number six. Um, prophet, of course, in revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways, uh, the whole word of God and all things concerning edification and salvation. Priest. Uh, by offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be reconciled for the sins of his people and making continual intercession for them. And king, and I like the way this king is described because we, you know, it's not just he's, he's a rule monger or something. In calling out of the world a people to himself, notice the sovereignty of that. He's, he creates his kingdom. And giving them officers, laws, and censures by which the visibly, they, he visibly governs them and bestowing saving grace upon his elect rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, persevering and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who not know, know not God and obey not the gospel. In other words, he's a sovereign king and he's ruling over um, 
and on our behalf and for our benefit. So that's sort of the, the first part. And then what I wanted to do is, is the second part wants to get into his perfections. Um, you ready to move on through the, the study guide? I feel like I'm zipping you through here a little bit quick. That's a quick question yeah. about something you said earlier. You said that um, Christ was um, man even before he was born from Mary. So He was human, yeah. He was he Because in the Nicene Creed it said he became man from the birth from Mary. Yeah. But, but you're saying for He all, became incarnate. Ah, uh, okay. So there's some real, I kind of, not sort of. I just kind of intentionally just kind of went right by this, but because um, <laughs> uh, I didn't think it'd, it'd be good. There, there's a there's a legitimate debate about the flesh of Christ, and 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 in what sense can we say that Christ presently is is has flesh? You know, our last scene of Christ is the flesh of Christ ascending, and then what happens? Oh. And I just bow a little bit of ignorance. <laughs> uh, what is interesting is that the church is described as the body of Christ or the flesh of Christ. You know, um, Augustine would answer it this way, and you've heard me say this before, total Christ. It's how we started that whole thing. You know, that he, the word became flesh and templed among us, and to that flesh is given the church, total Christ. So there's a sense in which we experience Christ's flesh vis-a-vis the, the fallible flesh of Christ that's in the church the fallible flesh of Christ that's in the church. In other words, if the Roman church says, where's the flesh of Christ? They're going to say, well, it's, it's, re, it's, tran, it's the transubstantiated uh, or, or converted, if you will, bread into the body and the blood of Christ, right? On, 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 during the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the Anabaptists can say there is no flesh. There is there's no, no mystery here in that regard. The vast number of in-betweeners, Lutherans, Presbyterians, you know, Episcopalians, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're going to say, oh, no, it's, it's, there's no, the, the, the elements of the table are not the flesh of Christ, but there is flesh, and it's the mediatorial presence of Christ by the joining of his spirit to the very body, flesh of Christ of the church, which makes the church an essential element of the gospel, although the caveat not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, if you mean by that, that it doesn't save you. It's not fallible, infallible. But the church becomes an essential, ordinarily, an essential element of the gospel, and that we would not have total Christ apart from it. So that's a much higher view of the church than it's just a voluntary association of believers. President, it's actually a temple. It's really scary to say the, the fallible flesh of Christ. You're, I'm saying, say Does it? Doesn't there something seem wrong with saying the fallible flesh of Christ? Well, I mean by that the fallible in that it's not not perfectly his flesh, the church. It's not perfectly his flesh. It's not, I mean, all these words. I heard flesh. I'm saying the church is not infallible. I'm saying the church is not infallible when I say that. In other words, there is a real, albeit not yet perfected flesh of Christ in the church. You know, we can say that about a lot of things. And there's the real coming of the kingdom of God now, but it's not yet the perfected and consummated kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean the kingdom hadn't come. It doesn't mean God's Christ's flesh. Is, now, when I say the flesh, I don't mean that you and I become somehow the elements of divinity or whatever that, however I could say that, right? It's, you're still just, you know, you're perfectly human. It's how we, though, 
in the mystery of the joining of the spirit to the the, the flesh of the of humanity, there is the mystery of the church. And it's, there's mystic communion there. And we're okay with the mystery. I don't have to kind of explain all that in my mind. I mean, there's so many mysteries, I, I've quit trying to, to do it. You know, I'm just okay with it. That's God, and that's our salvation. There's lots we can understand, and we're doing a lot of it right now, but at some point, every doctrine, as I've warned you before the beginning of this class, if ever I don't get you to the point of exasperation, I've not done my job. <laughs> because that's exasperation that makes us fall on our knees in worship. Preston, would you, how would you contrast that with the Catholic view of the infallibility of the yeah. ex-Catholic? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say we're not infallible, and um, and I would say they would see see the relationship. If if what's happening there by the power of the priestly, uh, you know, enunciation of the of Lord's Supper, is that Jesus is literally and physically present, then look at what 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 happens here with the church. That insofar as the church is acting ex cathedra in that Lord's table, it's it's an impossible. You can't have a fallible Christ, which was her point. And so this bread is infallible. It's say if you eat it, you're saved. It's got life presence in it, power in it. We're saying no. There's a spiritual union. You know that's why we call it the spiritual presence of Christ at the table by the Holy Spirit, who unites Himself or unites us or engrafts us into Christ by this mystical union of the Holy Spirit, Christ, Spirit, human, together. We are united to Christ. Distinct, we're going to say this about us, remember, distinct but never separate. The church is distinct but never separate from Christ. But, he's, but it's not the church's Christ, you know. It's the church's, the mystical communion of Christ. So I don't know if that gets at it, but yeah, it's pretty significant. These, these doctrines have many other, you know, trajectories that come off of it. If you believe in, trans, in transubstantiation, almost by necessity you have to believe there for the infallibility of the church. But if you believe in nothing, you know, then the church is a voluntary association and you shouldn't, you can't come expecting anything necessarily. You know? Whereas we can come and expect something that ordinarily... It is a means of salvation, which is really cool. I mean, I'm going to talk about this this Sunday when I do the baptism and membership, um, and I'm going to reference uh, Matthew 16. And just, yeah, you when you join the church, you are entering into that binding and loosing place of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's, it's the power of God to bind and to loose. Uh, it's to bind you into his kingdom power or to exclude you from that kingdom power to, in terms of your relationship with the church. That's amazing language that Jesus gave about the church, anticipating his ascension ministry. So we do believe in there's a real life presence of Christ. Um, let's look at uh, number three. Um, let's see here. I want to try to zip through here. We only got about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So, Look at number seven, and then y'all can reference to the to the things. See question number seven. Uh, it's referring referencing number three. So let me get to the question first. Note that the various perfections of Christ are part of His equipment for His mediatorial task, as the assembly says, to the end that 
in him might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety. Um, what are what are those in, what are those equipments, if you will? What are those things that they were describing to? Somebody read number three. The Lord Jesus, in His human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So this is just a further, uh, uh, you know, expression of who he is but now speaking not in terms of his nature but his character and his being right so he has this character notice some of the scriptures that that you have here Uh, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and has become higher than even the heavens you know and and so it's again going back to who jesus is Um, it would be hard to describe any prophet of any religion like this you know, it, it really, as I said in the sermon this week, I mean, we are really sounding foolish, except that we're looking for a really big and divine miracle. I mean, it's pretty crazy stuff, guys, you know, and, uh, but it's good that you see that. It's crazy, except that there's a God and just God is crazy. It's, that's a crazy notion, right? But we believe in God and we have reason to believe in God from all the evidence that surrounds us. So it goes back to the whole faith thing. And there's some other passages there. Notice also that despite his perfection, Christ did not take his meteorship upon himself, but was called to it. Hebrews 5, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Or Matthew 28, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Or Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, John Flavel says it this way, The business of man's salvation was transacted upon covenant terms between the Father and the Son from all eternity. And then then he begins like he does so well to ruminate on this. He goes, what grace was that which was given us in Christ before even the world began? But this grace of redemption, which was from everlasting, thus contrived and designed for us, and in that way which hath been here opened. Here, what's what, this? Just is wanting you to think deeply about what's happening here. This is not a man who had a great epiphany one day and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to be a savior." <laughs> this was something that was transacted from eternity within the Godhead itself. This covenant, this dad and father son covenant that was made you know that, that, that Jesus Christ took upon himself to be the mediator for the humanity and that covenant he makes with the father um, and so there is a kind of special father son within the holy trinity covenant that results in our salvation is what uh, we're talking about here why do you think it's important that it wants to stress that, that Jesus didn't take this on upon himself what have we learned about the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Unity. Unity. 
Yeah. One God. One God. And what's the, who is the father? I mean, it is interesting is, you know, this debate, well, I think we're going to get to it, but, but was Jesus subordinate to the father? At times. Yeah. Yes. But was he equal to the father? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. There's a constant, you know, subordination that Jesus manifests to the father. Father decrees, father elects, father sends. Jesus, as the Father sent me, and then the Holy Spirit is sent by Christ, and then we are the church with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which, in the one hand, and some people will call this the economic Trinitarian theory, which this idea that they, they each, the real, the only difference between the Trinity, we talked about this before, the only difference between the three Trinities is, uh, is that they just have different roles. Now that's a heresy. It's true that they have different roles, but to reduce the Trinity to just that would be to, to reduce their co-equality, the, all that same and substance, same and same and same and same stuff. Uh, no, they're three, but they're one. And so, so that's the key. But clearly what you're seeing here is the Son who's functioning in a redeemer or mediatorial way, satisfying what humanity could not satisfy as God ordained him to do. Which, again, what's the significance of that? Because the emphasis is that this is God's plan for salvation. In other words, this is not a human contrived thing. God ordained him to do what he did. Therefore, we are guaranteed of of God accepting what he did for us. I mean, try that for a day when you're starting to doubt your salvation. Hold on here. As you're studying the bridge, remember? As you're looking at the bridge, consider that this bridge... God put there for you to walk on it, which gives you great confidence that it's going to sustain you. It wasn't the bridge that put itself there. Now we're getting off the metaphor. So that's the emphasis there, that we can be assured that the Father is well pleased, as we heard in the sermon last week in the baptism, that this is my beloved Son. And, and that, that language of I, and, and whom I am well pleased is, is covenantal language. He satisfies everything I want him to be and to do in his work for you and his salvation. That's the basis of our salvation right there, the basis of our assurance that he has promised us that Christ satisfies him for us. So very important stuff. Well, um, let's see where we want to go here again. I'm trying to go quickly. Have y'all looked at this yet? I don't know if you have a question in other words, but... um, well, okay, yeah, we only got about three. I want to make sure I had enough here to go to that last one. So let's do this. Um, five through eight uh, really starts to work, focus on his work and the nature of his work. Now, we've looked at his person. It focuses on his work. You'll notice about his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself in chapter five, in, in question, or section five, fully satisfied the justice of God. He's really getting into the nature of his work. We're going to look at that again at the doctrine of justification. Uh, notice number six. The work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated into the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world and in by those promises. So, question. How was Moses saved? Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ wasn't there. Yeah, he was. When Moses submitted himself to the... Uh, to the sacrament of, of, of sacrifices. Did Moses know what 
that Jesus was going to be a Palestine necessarily? No. You know, did he know all the detail? No. But when he submitted to God's decreed plan vis-a-vis the temple by virtue of the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice system, he was, he was submitting to Christ and offering himself into Christ's mercy. So the Old Testament, New Testament were all saved the same way, in case that was unclear. Um, and it's all the seed stuff and everything. Number seven, uh, it says the work of mediation acts according to both natures. Here's this. Do you see how consistent the confession is to try to draw attention to this? Both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. <laughs> That's just trying to explain that, again, the, the, the nature and the work are related. Um, and there was a controversy that related to that, that little passage there. And to all those to whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he had to certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as is most consonant to the wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Does anybody want to know, has anybody heard of TULIP? I don't use it. It's a polemical device that I don't like, really. Uh, Yes. But could anybody do it? Uh, Travity. Unlimited. I'm better. Bad people. Okay, what's you? Okay, Alice Lemon. Help them out, Aaron. Yeah. I know you know. Yeah, guys. What did you say? Yeah. Unconditional action. Limited tone. Okay, perseverance the stays the last one. Yes. So, what is this passage describing? Look at it. Number six, uh, number eight that we just read. It's pretty much all there, isn't it? But particularly you see the irresistibility. That they're, 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 This is this limited atonement idea. Now, that, we're going to get into that later. But what, what would we mean by limited atonement? It's not that the gospel is not offered to all people. We call that what? The universal call. But remember how when we talked about effectual calling, that there's a kind of call that is that comes with the power of the Spirit or the effect that affects what it calls you to do? That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is another language for effectual calling. So in that sense, what we're saying is that grace is irresistible for those whom God has elected. This gets us back to that, that essay we read from, uh, remember, Whitfield to uh, when we read that wonderful little letter a response from Whitfield to Wesley about why he preaches. And Wesley says, why do you preach if it's all determined, if it's all election? And Whitfield says, I don't know why you would preach it. Because I have every confidence to believe that when I just bring the word of God out, it's irresistible to people. <laughs> Tell me that's not going to boast your confidence. And it's irresistible not because of the power of my tongue. It's irresistible because the power of God who by his Holy Spirit makes it irresistible. And so this point is being made is, is really that Jesus' work is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for there? It's, uh, it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's, there's a kind of infallibility that, that those whom Christ died for by divine election will in fact be saved. 
can't be stopped. It can't be thwarted. Got it? Mm-hmm. And finally, um, let's go all the way down. I want to get to the last one. Number 11, what is the present global and cultural context for us talking about the universality of Christ? We started with the universality of Christ. We're going to end with it. What should we respond? Is there a way to both embrace pluralism and the need for mutually beneficial dialogue with people of other religions while at the same time affirming the universality of Christ and the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father except for by me. So what do you, let's just talk about this uh, in closing here. Last five, we have seven minutes. What, what's this question asking you to think about right now, first of all? Well, I'm to put this in here. I mean, all of this has been great theologizing about Christ, but now let's do what? Let's bring it into our world. What kind of world is this question trying to help us think about that we live in? It seems narrow-minded, parochial. Yes. Good. What, what's the offense? What, what is the most offensive thing about Christianity in the world? It always has been. One way. Exclusivity. Exclusivity. I mean, that's what got Christians in trouble, remember? Nero had no problem with them, with the having Jesus as Lord. It's the exclusivity of his lordship. I, you can't have the emperor lordship either. There's only one lord, and there is no other. That exclusivity, or the universality of Christ, is another way to say it. Which I say it that way all the time. I rarely talk about exclusivity now because that totally opens up all these pan, all these cans of worms that we're not saying. We're not saying that God, you know, doesn't let some people have it and that it's Western only or something like that. But the university of worship, but the point being is that, look, uh, there is only one way to the Lord. That's the exclusivity way of saying it. Or Jesus is Savior for everybody universally who would receive him. You see? But now, okay, so we're getting to this issue of pluralism, right? And by pluralism, I don't mean that the observation that there is a plurality of religions out there. Pluralism will say what, basically? Except all of equal. They're all relatively equal. They're all the same. You know, it's the old one mountain there by different paths. We're all going to get there. Um, now, how are you going to deal with that here? We've got to, we have, this whole study tonight has been, you know, meditating on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the necessary relationship between what was needed in order for our salvation and the instrument that Christ has by his nature to pull that off. That's what the whole study's been talking about. That there's just only one way here because what was the ultimate problem according to the Christian scriptures? What's the ultimate problem? I want you to say this brashly as you can say it. We're not right with God. Yeah, the problem's God. The problem's God. He's got a problem with us. Rightfully so. We've got to appease that. We've got to deal with that issue. And how can we deal with that? Well, the mediator story. So, so the issue here is exclusivity or the universality, the pluralistic nature, where, of course, this doesn't sound very open-minded and tolerant. So how's that going to impact you, Christian, in the world? Well, if you're talking to a person that professes to be a Christian, you can go right to the Bible and see what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if uh, so, that's the yeah. That's good. A liar or not? 
So that's great. But I'd say most of us, and you including, most of us don't work with Christians that would even, in other words, what are you going to do with the world who doesn't give the Bible that kind of authority that you're describing? Which is great if they do. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this issue? How are you going to deal with other religions, for instance? Well, you, you talk about the universal problem of sin okay. uh, here, and you can you can usually experience uh, or share. So sin can be a point of contact. We got a problem. Yeah, you all agree with that? Yeah, but there is such a thing. So it is interesting that sin can be a point of contact. Yeah. I, do you really think something's not wrong about this world? I mean, just come on. How can you really say everything's fine? Uh, but you're going to get into some major conversations. But before you get into the apologetic, though, how are we going to deal with this? How do we, first of all, how are, how are we going to relate to other religions here? Are they just all totally bad? I mean, this no. exclusivity doesn't mean that they're excluded from, say, the community of believers. What does that mean? What, you're going to have to explain that. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, generally when you say, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, especially with religion and politics. So aren't you saying that about Christ? If you, if you no, don't believe I, in Jesus being the, the Savior of the world, aren't you saying to a person in so many words, you're wrong, I'm right? Yes, but that doesn't mean you have to exclude them from community. Okay, and what do you mean by community? Well, the church. So they can be in the church? Or they they could be in the church, but not okay. be redeemed. Okay, so you're, you're focusing on a posture that we should have with the world. Right, which I agree with. That, that we we don't need to treat them like enemies. And the doc, what doctrine would support what you just said? By the way, anybody want to help out? What's the doctrine we've talked about that would support what Fred said? That hey, we can't be de facto excluding people from the means of grace. What would that be? Unitarianism. Mm, we haven't talked about that in here. No. Oh, okay. Plus, that's not what we would believe. That. What else? Remember. I don't know. Well, you don't know who's elected. There it is. Good. Yeah, the, the universal call. There is a universal call. The, the church is not given privy to who are and are not going to be believers. There are, everyone is a, is, a, is a candidate that we meet. Every single human being we meet is a candidate to become a believer of God, of, of Christ. Even if they say they're not. Yeah, absolutely. I said I wasn't. Some of you probably said you weren't. And also one thing, a lot of people today are very strong humanists. Okay. And right. I found after really going through this, this glorifies humanity so much. Yes. Like more than I ever thought it did. Yeah. Um, but there's like, there's so many touch points yeah. here. Yes. That you could just set, I mean, from all eternity, Christ with in the Godhead um, is saying, we're going to redeem the, this, these humans at this point in time. Yeah. Not when there's no time, yeah. and then 14 billion years goes by or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's just unbelievable. Well, I, I would. We really needed when we did talk about anthropology. I, remember, I think you're referring when we did the, the whole chapter on anthropology or the doctrine of man, uh, humanity. Really, truly, Christianity is the ultimate humanist. Yeah, you know, and that's what many people describe Calvin. By the way, John Calvin is a humanist in, in terms of a history of thought. People describe him as a great humanist. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we don't have time to re re rehearse how we got to that from Christianity. But the idea of sin, ironically, exalts humanity. It treats humanity seriously. It treats humanity as uh, with, who's 
freedom and, and you know, there's an exalt. They're not mere animals, sensory perception creatures, right? That, that humanity has the capacity uh, to transcend the sensory and make decisions. And we talk all about that in our anthropology section. Moral beings, yeah. Um, right. but, but the key, that's right. So, and I think, too, it's interesting when we talked about the doctrine of sin. Well, we're doing a little rehearsal here. Remember, I, we made the point that, that sin, in, a, in an ironic way, exalts humanity. Because it, tr- it looks at the world, and, and it, it starts with a point of contact that says the, something's fundamentally wrong about this world. I just, you just can't in good... I mean, I think I told you the story of an Indian um, that, that he said it was the, doctrine, the Christian doctrine of sin that I never had access to in my Hinduism that made me a Christian. Because sin treats the problems of the world seriously, but in a manner that, that, that explains it not as who we are by nature, but what is flawed, what is uh, something that has become flawed about our nature. So it preserves the, the original nature and explaining this is like a sickness. So, so if you're if you're a leper, back in the New Test Old Testament you know days, you know if if you if you had translate if some people treated lepers as if they were just another kind of category of humanity that was just fundamentally flawed, you see. But now, what would a doctor say? No, it's, there's a human under that leprosy, a human that has. It could be every bit as beautiful if we could take care of the leprosy. Well, see, that's what sin does. Sin is viewed as leprosy. That's how it was an image that way. It was used as a typological image in the Old Testament for that. So sin is the leprosy. I'm not the leprosy, says Preston. Leprosy has defiled me. And so we talk about this defiling aspect of sin. But, but what I want to get back to is this issue of, of pluralism. I mean, can we learn something from other religions? Yeah. Can we learn a way to salvation from other religions? No. no. Good. So we need to be able to sit down at the table. Can other religions, um, can they explore areas of even sanctification in matters that might be, I mean, can we go to a Buddhist and learn anything that has Christian virtue from them? Absolutely. As a culture, you know, many speak of the humility, the deference. Um, and things of that nature. And we would call that common grace. We have a doctrine called common grace, a grace of God that is distributed like the rain to all people of all faiths and none. That restrains sin enough that all people of all faiths and none can do some very, very beautiful things. Um, As I've said, it's not uncommon that I encounter unbelievers that are honestly, in a holistic way, better people than I know I am. And I'm sure you do too. You know, you encounter unbelievers or other religious people, and you say, I wish I was half the person that guy was. I wish I was half the husband, half the father, half the just the kind person this person is. I, I could go on and on. I'm, I'm humbled by it all the time. I have Christ in me. Why, why can't, you know, and I'm not nearly as good as this person. That's common grace. You know, it comes out of a whole history maybe of their lineage and good habits passed down from one generation to another. That's all common grace. You know, I came out of a situation that maybe didn't have some of those things benefiting me as growing up. You know, that's common grace. So on the one hand, we should be able to sit down at the table and have a genuine, mutually learning, mutually humble conversation with other people of other faiths. I really want to emphasize that. I think we can learn a lot from uh, Muslims. 
and from Buddhists and from Hindus, etc. But we also need to turn right around and say, but there's only one way. If the problem is God, there is only one religion that offers what is required, which is a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. But doesn't atonement, atonement makes the difference between right. Christianity right. and other? That's right. And that mediator is how that atonement is satisfied. Right. By the nature of God being both God and man, or Jesus being both God and man. So, so I think this is important. Look at the way this Nietzsche put it. And let's just see, again, trying to get you in touch with this. And we just ran out of time. So as Nietzsche foresaw, the operation of Descartes' critical principle, and remember, I keep going back to this Cartesian revolution. It's so huge in the way it just turned our whole apparatus of how we relate to God and our selves and life and world upside down. Um, so uh, as Nietzsche foresaw, the operation of Descartes' critical principle, which has dominated the modern era, has by logical necessity destroyed itself and removed the possibility of certain knowledge. The postmodernists have been those who have most explicitly drawn this conclusion, but the belief that ultimate truth is unknowable and that everyone is entitled to that opinion has become one of the unquestioned assumptions of our culture. It is, of course, a self-contradictory belief, since one cannot assert that ultimate reality is unknowable without knowing what ultimate reality is. But this belief is overwhelmingly pervasive and because the church has lived so long in a cozy domestication with the modern worldview, it is inevitable that the same assumption seeps into the life of the church. Tolerance becomes a supreme virtue, and doctrine becomes a slightly suspect word. And so this is uh, Leslie Newbigin talking here. I, I must have missed the quote. Yeah, it's quoted there. But um, what, what is he saying there? What, what do we need to think about here as we move away from this doctrine of the Christology? What, what is he saying we need to challenge? What's the myth of pluralism? That we can't know the truth or yeah. what ultimate reality is. And, and you can't say you can't know the truth except that you would know the ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. So pluralism as a dogma, first you, 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 you help people say, but that is a dogma. Mm-hmm. You have just asserted a dogma, the dogma of pluralism. And therefore, we have to be confident to be able to say, hold it, though. You know, there is nothing, uh, there is no assertion, therefore, that is outside the limits of scrutiny. And, and in that, we can also have a point of contact. Now, you and I, by faith, remember, I'm talking to the world now. Now, I'm not saying as a Christian now, everything is, uh, you know, well, you know, subjective or something like that. No, I believe in I believe in fact. I believe it's a fact Jesus is Lord. Uh, no, it's not the kind of fact that I can put in a test tube, but it's a fact because I believe you can get facts from other sources besides just the modern scientific method. So I believe Jesus is a fact. I believe that salvation by grace through faith is a fact. I can go on and on. All our dogmas are facts that we believe in. But when I'm speaking to the world, I think we can. the, the point of contact can be Let's all agree together that there is no, from a, in the world's point of view, uh, there is no fact that's this indisputable, except that there's no indisputable fact. In other words, I can't prove God, you can't disprove God. So now what we've got to do is, is soften the rhetoric a little bit, take a deep breath, everybody, let's get to the table, and then let's really start talking about what happens in this life. 
I think that, that we would then start talking about what do you think is the problem with the world, <laughs> you know, and what do you think is is the solution to that problem, and do, what do you think about the creation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What I find when I do share Christ with someone, two areas I tend to really hit home with them is that one, the rejection of God, mm. and, and frustration with, that they have in God, and then the other aspect is that. They asked for God for something, and they're upset that God didn't provide for them at the time. Yeah. And getting to where that core was, the initial point, God does has hope and a lot of times opportunity to talk with them about God instead of talking always about this particular stuff and talking about that relationship and that and, and the rejection of God. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Any other final cop statements? Thoughts? Yeah, just on a hand, please. Okay. You mind? Well, let's let's end with a positive here, uh, not about pluralism. Back to the Whit- Whitfield thing. Um, I hope today has helped us to, I guess, just go home and meditate a little bit about just how beautiful and perfect Christ is, and how this salvation was so beautifully and eternally prepared for us. Um, it's not a mistake. Uh, you know, this is an amazing, amazing person that we're talking about when we talk about Christ. And I hope, if nothing else, this has helped us all to sort of go, wow, yeah, I haven't really thought about it like that. But there really is a lot going on in this relationship of the person and work of Christ. And, and so that's why Christology is so important. Uh, to get him, him right is to get salvation right. And again, as I'm speaking to the world... You know, God will give people eyes to see and ears to hear. If nothing else, they will discern, as I think one of you said at this table, that, uh, that, that there is no other basis for grace in the world. I mean, there is no other basis for grace. And, and, and a way that would, that would satisfy the, Lord, the problem, which is that rightly relating to God. There is no other way to rightly relate to God and to get you grace. I mean, one way I've said it many times at the Lord's table is we come to this table, and I'm always struck with how at that moment in history, 2,000 years ago, as Christ was, was hanging on that cross, justice and grace, two things that we view as totally incompatible, at that very moment were made compatible. They belong together, justice and grace. He, he God, at the same time, I heard one person, I can't remember who this was, maybe you can remember Aaron, but someone said God hated us, and he loved us at that same moment. By hating, he means that figuratively as he poured his wrath upon us and he poured his love upon us at the same time. And that's because Christ was the mediator who was both God and man. God giving grace, man receiving wrath. It's unbelievable. So let's pray.